even the radical elements of the left tend now to adopt the kind of identitarian politics of the liberal left rather than the communitarian socialism of the traditional left. And this means that we have arrived at an increasingly fractious moment where groups that would have once been uh, together formed a communal socialist block to push politics in a different direction are now antagonistic towards each other in ways that I've never seen during my, my adult life. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. With me is Ricky Orpike. How are you, Ricky? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed. Yeah, pretty jazzed up. Yeah, yeah. Good conversation uh, tonight. But before we get into that, um, how are you is what I want to know because, you know, and this is all connected people, uh, you went to a kind of a block party recently and, um, you know, of a, of a, of a very special particular kind tell me about it i did yeah i got pretty pretty jazzed up myself uh i went to uh the celebration that happened at the front of parliament here in uh, melbourne to celebrate the resignation of uh our premier dan andrews who uh was responsible for the longest lockdown in the world but also a bunch of other woke policies around gender id and and you know just some other dodgy stuff as well so mm. it, there, there was a celebration. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed there weren't more people that, that came out to celebrate. Deluded. You're so deluded. Like, you keep saying this like you don't live in Melbourne. Like you live in Melbourne. I'm surprised 10 people came. Everyone I've spoken to there just was totally complicit in, in that whole deal. And all that, all they said, oh, it was all for the good, good of the state, or whatever. That's true. There are a lot of people that went, oh, you know, well, it's about saving lives, saving lives, you know. But I, you know, I, I thought there'd be more just because when, when some of the lockdown protests happened, there were some pretty big ones that happened towards the end because we just sort of had a gutful by the end of it. So I was hoping that there would be that would be more people. Um, but they're recovering from their rubber bullet <laughs> words. <laughs> That's right, they are. But but I was a little bit disappointed also that the celebration was like obviously we're celebrating the fact that this guy's gone and who knows what's going to happen next if the next person's going to be worse or better or, or whatever. It's hard to know. But the way some people were celebrating, like like we had triumphed, was a little bit hard to take because this guy Dan Andrews he, he did go out on his own terms and he went out on top and he's going to sail on to some plum job in you know in New York or something. Where's America, isn't it? And, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have I have heard some people say uh, some people that I know on the inside that Daniel Andrews doesn't go anywhere in public in Melbourne without a bulletproof vest on. So that does show you that he's not a very popular man here. In, in some regards, I mean, you know, the the big leftist population that we have here definitely uh, definitely do uh, support him pretty hard. But there were some pretty loose units at this celebration as well, which is pretty funny. And someone donated no someone donated like two thousand dollars worth of beer that was just free for people to have and mm, you know, get on the I, I, I kind of almost wish I came in costume. I wanted to come in like a gimp suit that said like "Lock me down harder." And that, you know, and, and that I had, you know, like a COVID mask on and, you know, that's, that's how I wanted to do it. But so you wanted to become a, cook, <laughs> a full cooker. <laughs> I you love that term. term. I hate this term so much, cooker. It gets thrown around so much. And I was thinking I about it. I, I just, don't know what it means. Really. I, I think it's just a, a, a slur that gets thrown at working class people. 
Honestly, that's what I yeah. think it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's supposed to mean that you that you're a conspiratorial person that you that you I don't know that you're a meth head or something or cooked. Are you cooked? You know, I don't know. Are you? I don't know. Look, I yeah. Okay, I think it's fringe. Um, yeah, all I'll say is that, um, you know, Daniel Andrews is just another one of these leaders that didn't get it the way I wanted him to get it. Uh, I wanted the people to vote him out. Yeah, that's right. I didn't want him to walk yeah. away. So, yeah. you know, um, but they never were going to vote him out. So, yeah. Well, I will say the people that were there struck me as old school lefties, you know, people that were concerned about economic change and class and who didn't give a shit about wokeness or Am I identity politics. Well, you ran into Angie? Yeah, sure. Well, you ran into Angie. She's I did, one of our, yeah. one of a, friend, a friend of the show. Yeah, yeah. She was there with, with one of her friends. They, they had some sort of turf sign up, you know. Yeah, that's good. Making friends all around town, Ricky yeah. Allpike. Yep. Uh, well, anyway, this is all related because our two guests, uh, Simon Winlow and Steve Hall, are uh, – uh, wrote a book called The Death of the Left. It's all about the the left, a subject that we one of our portfolios here at the at the New Flesh, and um, I found it to be fascinating and and quite uplifting in the end. Yeah, it does come around there at the end. Um, what one thing I really appreciated of, uh, of from the book is sort of the historical count of of the left, which I found quite fascinating. Which which I, you know, I. Don't know much about so. Well, as as I uh, said to the guys, I'm I'm having a bit of a crisis because, you know, I've never really questioned where you know what we know and how we know it, and we've sort of been soaked in a certain kind of of left politics and um, elite left politics, and uh, yeah, it's really uh, quite disillusioning to learn um, where that's all come from. And you know, I mean, one one of the guys said that. you know, um, think that the wheels fell off in 1979 or something. <laughs> oh, well, didn't 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 Steve say that that the wheels were never put on? <laughs> yeah, that's. Right. <laughs> so there you go. Like this is the what are, uh, the uh, the kind of the narcissism of 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 us is to think that we're the center of the universe, and this guys these guys are here to tell us that you know we know nothing, and and mm. we don't, and um, so that's why you need to listen to this episode. Well, something you also need to do is you need to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment there. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now, on with the show. No, no, we're not getting Ricky. Look, listeners, you only respond when I get touchy with you okay so come on this is an abysmal amount of ratings okay you you, i want you all to do better that's all i can say okay the review is yep i know that takes time but you can give us a rating come on 32 reviews come on surely this is better than than mama mia's podcast what mama mia out loud what are they even talking about yeah so just give us a give us a rating come on it's free we don't have any ads um you know ricky Make, make sure it's a five star rating as well yeah oh, not well, a one star on. i mean you know for goodness sakes I don't, i'm not even going <laughs> to dignify that let's get on with it professor simon winlow and professor steve hall are renowned scholars who have published work together in the fields of criminology social theory philosophy and history along with their many published papers they have also collaborated on several books criminal identities and consumer culture rethinking social exclusion revitalizing criminological theory towards a new ultra realism 
The Rise of the Right, English Nationalism and the Transformation of Working Class Politics, and most recently, The Death of the Left, Why We Must Begin from the Beginning Again. Steve and Simon, welcome to The New Flesh. Thanks for having us. So you both had a lasting collaboration, uh, which can be a lot like a marriage. And I'm so surprised that, you, you know, you're quite prolific, you know, just a little cursory search of the papers you've done together. I'm fascinated uh, by your collaboration. How did you find yourself working together and how do you work together? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that uh, he's a, a supporter of this this entity called the Sunderland Association Football Club along the road, and, and I'm a supporter of the Newcastle United Football Club, so we're actually great rivals. This is the, the, one of the great traditional rivalries in, in football. So obviously everything he says is wrong. So I had to put it, start putting him right, you see, and he thought exactly the same. So we had this sort of uh, instant dialectical war, you know, things are, you know, being, you know, and so we we, we we hammer everything out. We're not joined at the hip. We don't agree on anything. And, and everything we say is a product of uh, long, long discussions. When we first met, um, I'm a bit older than him, but I'm quite a lot older than him, most people. And, and um, <clears throat> we met when uh, Simon was a, a young academic and I was a bit longer in the tooth we were doing our job, professional job, researching violence in the nighttime economy. We had a big um, grant from the uh, Economic and Social Research Council. And um, Simon was doing some very dangerous work at the time, which no doubt he may even tell you about. And when I'm sitting in the office gathering data and thinking about it. And we just realised that we neither of us were satisfied. We're both from the northeast of England. We're from working class. We're both working class kids made good. Um, we're not from the heart of the British imperial middle class, you know, and, and, and we have our own worldview, which we, which we found was quite similar. And so we start talking about you know, the need for new theoretical frameworks. We were dissatisfied with the answers that social science was produ- producing at the time, dissatisfied with post, the, the direction of postmodernism. And so um, we started discussing ideas and eventually um, we came down, you know, came around to the agreement that we need a new theoretical framework and we need new analytical frameworks. We need we need to revisit some of the empirical data that social science has been sloshing around for years because we thought it was uh, in an awful lot of confirmation bias going on in research, you know, simply agreeing with what would be, you know, the, the, the canon. And we thought it was time for a bit of a change, so we, we, we worked. And, and this took a bit longer than we thought, really, Simon, didn't it? You know, when we start off on this. <laughs> and they still were still being resisted and, and cancelled daily by, by when we challenge some of the, the, the um, ideas that have been around maybe a bit too long. We were just, uh, I think, to add to what Steve's already said, is we were always very committed social scientists. So we always wanted to know the world better. We always wanted new tools to try and understand the world better. And we never were happy with the ones that, you know, traditional sociology and criminology gave us. So we wanted to have another look and have a look around and see what tangential ideas from philosophy and the broader humanities, uh, you know, what we could take from those fields. And also we looked around and tried to see how we could ourselves build new tools for understanding it. A rapidly changing world. So we were always, you know, what brought us together is just that desire to try and go beyond what already exists in terms of the explanatory frameworks in the social sciences. So, Steve, you you, you mentioned the C word a minute ago, and that's cancelled. Is it is it true you were cancelled, and 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 what for? 
Well, I've been cancelled more times than I've had Todd dinners, you know. I mean, I say I've been cancelled weekly at one point, you know. I think that I'll tell you about final cancellation in a moment. But to give you an example of what Simon was saying, I mean, what he's saying is very true. And this is one of the fundamental drivers behind our project is a dissatisfaction with, with uh, the theoretical frameworks that we were forced to work within in, in social science. I'll give you an example of moral panic. You've both probably heard of this term. It, 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 it's in common usage now. It's a social set. It was actually stolen by Stanley Cohen. You can trace the use of this term back into to the 1830s, probably before, when a surgeon general said, don't tell the, anyone that there's a cholera outbreak in all places in Sunderland. Uh, the cholera outbreak because it will induce a moral panic amongst the population. Now, he's known as the originator of this, but he's not. It's an old idea. It's an idea that really is the reverse of what, of what it was purported to be at the, at the time. And he sat in a cafe, watched some kids knocking seven bells out of each other on Brighton, as they tend to do on Saturday. The bikers versus the mods or something, I think it was. And there's sensational paper, newspaper reports, oh, the, the youth of today are terrible and all the rest of it. And, and um, he said, well, this is a moral, inducing a moral panic in the population. So the population of Britain is in a moral panic about youth and that they're getting un, un, unruly and, and violent. Well, they can be unruly and violent, and I was quite unruly and violent at times myself as a youth coming from the, the, the coal mining village where, where I was born. Um, and, but we re realised that who's frightened of who here? Who's really panicking? Was the Surgeon General panicking about the populist uprising that could have happened and, and, and the, mob, the, the potential mob violence that could have happened if, if there'd been knowledge of the cholera outbreak that had spread? So where's the real fear? Is the real fear here that um, liberals who are terrified of populism and authoritarianism, that the popular, that people will vote for authoritarian governments, ah, yeah, if they think that, 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 that their concerns are not being dealt with, will they vote? So who's, frankly, who's in a panic here? It's not the people who are in a panic. Why We're diminishing public concerns. Now, if you diminish public concerns for too long, Things fester. The public feel like we're in a post-truth society. We're not being told. We're being lied to. Yeah. So if you do that for too long, you're actually making things worse. Yeah. So we reversed that. We said, no, no. It's it's Stanley Cohen's who are in panic. It's the liberals who are in a panic about populism and 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 the possibility that populism can take an authoritarian turn like it did in Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s. But if you read. The history of populism, Thomas Frank's book is very good that people know and we've researched it ourselves. Populism can take any turn. It can take a turn to the left, it can turn to the right, or it can just die out overnight. It can do anything. And so, it re really, we were being fed these terms, moral panic. It was the first thing I was taught as a, as, as a student of, of, of social science. And, and, and I thought, well, why am I being taught about this? Why am I being taught about research methods and, 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 and theories that explain things? Why am I being taught about, first about a concept that actually induces fear? So this is a, an example of what we're talking about. And there are dozens of other examples of these really bad ideas uh, that, uh, you know, that we could 
put them all into question, but they sort of students wrote, learn them, and then they're, they're as if they're just truths that, 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 that and t- truths and eternal verities that need. It's almost like being in a church, you know, and, and reading the catechism. And so we thought this this won't do, and and, and we set about uh, making a few changes. And every time we try to change something, we were cancelled. <laughs> Well, so I we think it probably end, means that you're pointing towards true north uh, in in many ways. Um, so you, you've you've come out of out of uh, this this field of of, uh, of sort of criminology or or something to that effect, and you found yourself uh, at some point dis uh, you know uh, disaffected with left politics and um, and 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 writing about that. So we'd love to hear. Um, you know how how you've actually made that transition, and what like where did this book actually come from? What 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 made you take the leap? Well, I think um, obviously we were both uh, well. We grew up in the left. We grew up in the traditional what we we'll call this, you know, the seed beds of democratic socialism. Steve through there in concert, and uh, me in the city of Sunderland, and there were all areas that were dominated by the organised working class, you know, trade union movement principally, but also things like working men's club systems and, and whatever else. And uh, one was expected to adopt the ideas of kind of togetherness and collectivity and rallying round. And it was never perfect, but there was they always existed as kind of truths on which you could build a, a community. And then as we aged, I think, it became increasingly clear that these things had been left behind in left politics. And so we kind of, you know, with the neoliberal revolution, we we were at first dismayed and then disappointed. And then, of course, as supposedly left-wing parties began to introduce new neoliberal reforms, we thought that the left was lost. But we always retained this kind of idea that, that there's going to be a resurgence, right? You know, there's someone else is going to come along, some charismatic authority is going to come along and push us in a different direction, or there's going to be a grassroots movement that is going to force the left's institutions to shift direction and once again represent the interests of ordinary people. And I think throughout both our lives, we've thought, hoped, clung on to that sense of hope that soon things are going to turn around. And I think, uh, especially since the, well, the last 10, 15 years or so, it's the recognition that they're not going to turn around, that there isn't actually in any of the institutions of the left the will to make significant interventions and improve the lives of ordinary people. And it's not just the institutions have been dominated and you know subsumed by neoliberalism, but even the radical elements of the left tend now to adopt the kind of identitarian politics of the liberal left rather than the communitarian socialism of the traditional left. And this means that we have arrived at an increasingly fractious moment where groups that would have once been uh, together formed a communal socialist block to push politics in a different direction are now antagonistic to win towards each other in ways that I've never seen during my my adult life. And I think it's the recognition that from nowhere on the horizon can we see anything positive changing for the left. So that, you know, even the most articulate antagonists of neoliberal capitalism tend to avoid articulating a kind of an alternative. 
they're just against stuff, very negativistic. They want to tear down or change something about reality. They don't want to build anything new. They don't want to replace it. They're just angry at some injustice. And this really isn't taking us anywhere productive. And so our book is really based upon, first of all, that cold recognition, which is really something to to kind of accept a reality you wish would never arrive. But then, of course, the 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 hard work of kind of digging into the history of the left and, uh, you know, doing the research necessary to understand its gradual progression as it moved from one era to the next. So it's it's dawned on us that as millennials, we're products of, and you cover this in your book, of what you might call the new left, uh, which, you know, I suppose if we had to just pick some features, it would be individualism, globalism, multiculturalism, environmentalism and open markets. So this was, Ricky, you know, this is sort of the water that we were swimming in. And um, recently we've come to this this epistemic crisis where we've realised that we've come out of this this particular, we've been swimming in this water for our whole lives and as it's become something else now. um, But what I was struck by in your your history of the left before this uh, was that um, you know you, you guys sort of suggest that um, the wheels came off uh, long before our, our, we were even on the scene? So we'd love if you could give us uh, some insight into the left in the time before what we know as the the beginning. Well, in, in a sense, the wheels were never put on, uh, and, and that's what we're claiming. We're, we're making some quite some claims here that some have regarded as rather outlandish or extreme. But we don't think so because we've researched this thoroughly um, and we're in a position where we're driven to research this because our people, uh, the, 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 the English working class, have been on the receiving end of um, uh, an awful lot of problems um, in, in the capitalist uh, continuum. Uh, and the left was really the only support they had. So the, the left has to function in some way uh, simply for us to, to lead tolerable lives. Uh, but if you look at the left in England, and, and you know, we exported an awful lot of the, these ideas to um, uh, the Americas and Australia. The European left is different. We'd have to write a new book about the European left. Um, but certainly the, 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 the Anglophone world, um, the left of, of our world, was never the left in the first place. I mean, the, the term came from the, you know, the French Revolution. The French Revolution was a bourgeois revolution. It had nothing to do with the working class. It was lawyers and, 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 and businessmen and trying to get rid of the ancien regime and its restrictions. Um, and uh, the, the 19th century um, left from the Chartists uh, right through the Fabians. This is a continuum. This is the new left. This isn't the new left. The new left is just a variation of the old left. And it's never, ever allowed working class people to rise up through its institutional ranks and, and, and hold any sway or have any influence whatsoever. It's never allowed working people's ideas. So, so the question, I guess, then, Steve, is why why is the left, why are they so allergic to the working class? Because they hate us. And they regarded from the from the beginning, the working class were just putting to work on. They were, they, they was, you know, the, 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 Peter Turkin's notion that, that of course, that, that um, rebellions tend to be led by what he calls the downwardly mobile elite, and this is this is true across most of history. 
Um, you look at the Chinese rebellions, you look at the Soviet Union, you look at the French Revolution, they're, they're all led by the elite. And if you look even at, at the Peasants' Revolt in, in, in the 14th century in England, the John Ball and, uh, was, was a priest. You know, they, they were never led by the working class. So our ideas have always been either seen as too radical or prejudiced or bigoted or insular. And there's always something wrong with us. There's always something that needs to be improved now we're, 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 so we're tra the Roman class is a congregation. It's never in the pulpit to giving the sermon. It's always the congregation. And if you look at Henry Heinemann, the Social Democratic Federation, all of these working class led, led movements, they were suppressed from the very beginning. Karl Marx had fell out with his only working class friend. I've forgotten his name now, but uh, because he had uh, he was questioning some of Karl Marx's ideas, um, and, and so we've just been kept at arm's length. And worse than that, of course, some of the Fabians, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, H.G. Wells, uh, uh, and um, all of these people, some, some were eugenicists who regarded the working class as feeble-minded. Not, not all of us, obviously, but, uh, but, but uh, the, the sort of bottom end of the working class is feeble-minded and we should be bred out. So we've never been taken seriously. We've never been allowed to lead. And, and, and no matter how clever you are in a British university system, if you retain working class values, if you retain your, even your accent and, 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 and what, what you know, Borgia calls this cultural capital of the, of, of the working class, then you, you're, not gonna, you're not going to rise in positions of, of leadership or influence. You're, we're not allowed to lead ourselves. We have to be led. And I think that the suspicion that the working class is full of, that, that it's nationalistic, it's full of bigotry and prejudice, and we're a bit stupid, I think. It, 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 it sometimes, yeah, even that, that, that comes across. Despite, it doesn't matter how high your IQ is or how good your work is, it doesn't matter. You're coming from the wrong place. I sat on interview panels in the universities. I always used to keep pretty quiet in these horrible affairs. And I've heard things, you know, well, you know who should we select for this PhD? Oh, yes, she looks like one of us. She sounds like one of us. And for no other reason, not because the idea was great or, or, or that, that this person had a particularly good track record, but that she's one of us or he's one of us. And it, it's a very much, a, you know, a culture that likes to continue itself. It, it, it's, a, it's a culture of leadership. You know, don't forget the English education system was designed to, to train people to run the British Empire. <laughs> And, and, and it's still, those values are, are, are still there, you know. So, no, the working class has never, ever been the, the influential leader of the left, ever. And it's, so it's basically a continuation, a continuum with, with, with variance. The new left um, simply um, took that to the extremes, where basically the working class was no longer the agent of history. Uh, we saw that in after 1968, you know, that, that little rebellion in France that, well, they're always doing it, aren't they, the French, you know, having these little rebellions. And they thought that was going to be a new revolution. And, uh, uh, and, and so um, the likes of Pierre Victor and Michel Foucault and all the rest of these went out into the Renault factories in the fields and, and, and they decided, well, we don't like these people. They're all drunken Catholics. They're all a bit sexist. They have traditional values. They like football too much. And we don't, well, they're no longer the agent of history. So let's dissolve this body into its various identitarian components and let's see who we can persuade to be progressive and we reconstruct. Now Derrida, of course, had said that we, we, we should never, we can deconstruct everything, but we should never reconstruct 
So well, they wanted to reconstruct, but only half-heartedly. Let's, so let, let's just see who's more progressive. Let's see if we can build momentum up from these various identitarian positions. 70s, 80s, that became a grift where so these identitarian groups formed themselves in their little social hierarchies, again under the same principle that the middle class should be leading in the working class. So working class blacks, working class gays don't get in as much out of all of this as, as the middle classes. And we've had um, reports of Black Lives Matter leaders becoming millionaires and buying property all over America, yeah. you know. And it, it just becomes another grift because you can't do anything else other than grift in a market society because that's what markets are about. So it all just collapses and, and it, it all they've, they've got rid of the working class, they've got rid of the dangerous collective. So well, that's a good thing. The identitarians think they're on, uh, on, on a winner, they're not. And so the whole thing just collapsed, and, and, and we thought we'd better chart this. Depressing though it is, we'd better just try and, and produce some provisional knowledge to see if we get people thinking about it. And we found that um, an author, some people agree with us, and, and they think, they're thinking it's time for another change, and others are, 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 are um, you know, either ignoring us or, or seeking to cancel us <laughs> again. <laughs> it's all good. Has, has Brexit given you hope at all? No, not particularly. I don't think... Uh... The first, it's a, it was, a, it was an opportunity. It allowed the British state to wrestle back a degree of sovereignty from these uh, extra national uh, institutions. But of course, the Tory party in, in in office at the moment remain absolutely committed to uh, global neoliberalism, and there hasn't been a movement to reindustrialize or anything like that. And also, of course, that we haven't seen the kind of democratic deficit being plugged. So people are, you know, people feel that these institutions, the institutions of the state remain distant. Uh, I don't think Brexit has opened up any real, it revealed something which had been hidden, which was an obvious class antagonism. So, um, you know, the left's response, uh, of course, is to dismiss anyone who voted for Brexit as being a mindless bigot. And this revealed, just reflected the fact that the issue Steve raised in his last comment, where the working class, you know, should follow the ideas uh, given to them by, by their appointed leaders. And this has never been clearer. You see some of the social scientific analysis of Brexit, where Brexit voters have a lower IQ and, you know, all the all of that stuff is being used to suggest that we need to rejoin and that the, the dumb working class have been misled by signs on the side of a bus on, you know, the, the right-wing press and all the rest of that, and that they're too stupid to form their own views, whereas smart liberals, of course, could see immediately that remaining in the EU was beneficial for all. And, of course... I think it, Brexit is useful for the only point that it revealed these hidden antagonisms. And for many, especially on the left, these antagonisms have been disguised and kind of the carpet have been pulled over them to keep them hidden. Uh, and it revealed that underneath this apparent jousting between left and right was uh, a hidden competition between the working and the middle class. And this isn't just a matter of the working class being left and the middle and upper classes being right. Obviously, the the dominant sectors in every institution on the left are led by the enlightened, educated middle class. And the, the door has never been open for the working class. The only working class representatives who rise up in these institutions are 
those members of the working class who can learn their lines, you know, can learn the correct form of argument, can correct their focus. If they adopt the ideas that they're given by their leaders in the middle class, amongst middle-class liberals, then they can become kind of uh, subdominant elite within the uh, kind of the left institutions, never at the top, because, of course, the, the elite keep those rules for themselves, but they can rise up to uh, just below the elite because they articulate the right ar- arguments. Well, I've been thinking about the elite that you guys talk about, and my only way in it is is that I know a few people, more than a few people, who work in arts and entertainment, uh, and many of them are absolute disciples of this kind of ultra-progressive new left politics. Um, and some of them work, uh, uh, you know, in the, just the mainstream commentariat or at the public broadcaster, uh, our ABC here, which is the same as your BBC, uh, and people who work, you know, in, in drama and stuff like that. Um, but I really get the feeling that what they really like, and I got this from your book as well, is what they really like is the freedom to do whatever they want all the time, but be seen as virtuous on the right issues. Um, and at the moment, it's trans and the plight of black and brown people, but that could change. Um, so I want to know, uh, and I suppose it's 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 a, it's kind of a, a liberalism, which I hadn't. Uh, I'm only just coming to terms with now. You go into this in your book, uh, so liberalism, I guess, we describe as you know, individual rights, civil liberties, democracy, and free markets. Uh, but but I think typified by by this a, a sense of freedom for the individual. So I guess these people, this elite, seem to be interested in in um, serving themselves but appearing to be uh, uh, virtuous. And I, I just want to know from your guys' perspective, how do these people get away with claiming the moral high ground when we all know they don't want, actually want genuine change? That's a, 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 that's a big question. That's a big uh, cultural and philosophical question and it goes back to the birth of liberalism. Uh, the, you know, the distinction between... Uh, political liberalism, economic liberalism, free markets weren't always part of, of, of liberal thinking. And for all the physiocrats came up with the idea of laissez-faire and the idea of Smith's idea of the invisible hand, let the market just, just go. So it's a huge question. But I think I can sort of find a, a quilting point um, in, 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 in liberalism that, 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 that might sort of explain it, uh, which was Isaiah Berlin's notion of negative liberty, this tension between negative liberty and positive liberty. Now, you're, you're talking about negative liberty, um, <clears throat> which is the freedom to be left alone to your own devices, and, and, and it's anti-authoritarianism, so it's essentially negative. But authority is, is always bad. So Thomas Hobbes' notion of Leviathan, you know, where you give up some of your, 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 your freedom to allow yourself to be governed, and that should be done democratically um, rather than in a sort of autocratic way, obviously. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want the, uh, the, the, to, to, to live under an autocratic government. But, but democratic authority, the word authority means to, to give people permission to, to give them you. So it's not a scare word that it is, whereas autocracy is a scary word, but authority itself shouldn't be that scary. Um, I give permission, people to permission to do stuff um, all the time. If a joiner comes into my house and says, well, I don't know much about what you're doing, so here's the authority to do it. Let's see what happens. If it's crap, I won't pay you. So that's how democracy should work. But you have to pass over authority sometimes. Economics, for instance, uh, and very few people understand economics. 
one of the, the problems we had with the EU was that, that, that the EU's rules on, um, for instance, fiscal responsibility, limiting uh, uh, government spending to 3% of GDP means that the public investment just is, is restrained so much that it can't actually do anything to help the countries. I was on Belgian railways the, the, the other week, especially the best railways in the world, they're falling apart because public investment is not allowed in, in Europe. So the freedom, negative freedom is about the freedom of the individual. It's an intrinsicalist position, what the philosophers call, this is a principle we should stick to. But what are the consequences? Now, obviously, Berlin was actually, you know, and let's not... Um, Let's not slag him off too hard because he was he, he did see there was a balance between positive freedom. Now, positive freedom means we have to have the resources to be able to do anything. You know, it's that classic old Marxist notion of the driving license. You know, driving license gives you permission to do anything, yeah, but that's no good unless you can afford a car. So positive freedom gives you the platform on which more people can have a car. So it means the driving license can be manifested in real in reality. So we need a balance of positive freedom and negative freedom. Liberalism is all about negative freedom. It has no consequential logic behind it. What, what do people do with freedom? What has Bill Gates done with his freedom? What has Elon Musk done with his freedom? What do child abusers do with their freedom? So we have, we've lost this notion of moral judgment of the consequences of freedom. John Stuart Mill said, of course, that we should give freedoms much as possible, up to the boundaries of harm. Now, one uh, a young colleague of ours, Thomas Raymond, has written a brilliant book about harm, about the enigma of social harm. Said, we've, never had, uh, we've never been able to grasp the notion of harm firmly enough to, to talk about authority in, in a knowledgeable sort of way. What, what, what is harm? When does harm start start with, you know, where's the boundary of harm? When do we step over it? So this balance between positive freedom and negative freedom has never been approached by liberals in, in an intelligent way. And um, the, the, the cult of negative freedom can lead us in all sort, down all sorts of directions where people now, it's every day people are starting to question the notion of freedom. Is it a good idea to tarnish the notion of freedom so badly that people begin to question the principle? And that's when you get an authoritarian reaction. So we, our research in criminology in the past has looked the drivers towards or the sort of authoritarian reactions that, that nobody wants to see. The main driver is extreme negative liberty and, and, and liberalism. Because they, they're going to... They're going to create that reaction um, simply by pursuing their project to taking their project to its limit. I was just going to say that uh, we now occupy a, uh, an era which some have suggested is can be described as post-68 capitalism. So during 68, 1968, of course, you've got all the kind of revolts across Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and there's a fundamental change in the nature of corporate capitalism during this particular era. And lots of corporations and lots of business people and entrepreneurs began to pour scorn upon what they called the conservatism of the old capitalism, which was more steeply hierarchical. You know, the image of people with bowler hats and pinstripe suits, and it was very masculine. And they suggested that the new capitalism that was developing into the 70s was going to become more hippie-ish, uh, kind of more open, less patriarchal, less Eurocentric. It was going to draw in the entrepreneurial abilities of all the diverse people of the world. And we didn't need the state 
to do anything because we were going to draw upon all these entrepreneurial spirits around the world that give people the freedom that they desired. Freedom became integral to post-68 capitalism. It created huge expanses of jobs, the kinds that you're describing there, John, um, for upwardly mobile, educated, middle-class liberals to move into the corporate sphere to earn huge salaries and still believe themselves to be archetypal representatives of the left. The working class movement is forgotten. You know, as we moved into this 1968 period, the idea of a working class orientated left where that was fundamentally about economic management and was going to guarantee everybody, you know, a reasonable platform to build a life of their own, that was forgotten. And it was about giving people more opportunities to experience a marketized liberal freedom. And this is where the left took us. And I think, you know, we, we do criticize the kind of middle class liberal left, but they remain a subdominant left. You know, the real um, sound like a kind of Marxist here, but the entrenched power of the financial elites are the true elite. The subdominant elite, the middle class liberals who are usually in corporations and have cultural influence, are actually managing this post-68 capitalism in the interests of financial elites. Uh, and, you know, the, it, rather than, I know Ma Matthew Goodwin would probably disagree with me, and he'd say that these middle-class elites are really the people who are pulling the strings. But actually, in many cases, they're, what they're doing, they're doing in order to continue onwards in the path that, on, the path that we're on. It seems like, in many cases, they're, they're radicals. But they're being radical in order that what already exists can continue. It's not a radical break, pushing, pushing us in a different direction. It allows the drivers that are producing a profound inequality across the globe to continue. And that's the real problem that the left faces now. If it continues to head down that path towards increased focus on liberalism, identities, it denies the kind of collectivity of all socialism, then we're never going to get the grips with neoliberal capitalism. So, sorry, sorry, Simon. I'm just going to jump in there because it's it's so fascinating what you say because um, the I worked recently with some people who are on the on in the on the business side of of the world and being from the humanities and in the arts, I'm sort of. I got no idea about these people. And like you know, one guy has a a family in construction. All the all the guys it's in Sydney, private school boys, people from all this side of of life. And I got the feeling that they don't think about um, the cultural left and these 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 um, uh, people, these power brokers that we people we think are power brokers. People I I, I mentioned. They don't, we don't, they don't think about those people at all. So, so I find it really compelling, this idea that, um, you know, the people who at the public broadcaster who think that they're, you know, they're in charge, that they're not actually, they're really just, they've just been given a chit by someone, by these, these this sort of business elite, the economic elite, perhaps. They're the handmaidens for, for, the, for the corporate elite, maybe. That's right. And it, 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 it's, it's a... <sighs> It's not some sort of plan. It's not some sort of human relationship. This is just a, a, a logic that, that, that needs to be followed, you know. The business, uh, uh, the myth, of course, is that business people should be freed up. Uh, we should have low taxes. We should encourage investment, encourage enterprise. And that's how we got rich. 
In fact, it's a myth because if you look, take the USA, for instance, the state controlled all of the, the construction of the railways and the opening up of the West. The state was hugely involved in all of this. If you read uh, Mariana Mascato's book, The Entrepreneurial State, you know, there are a lot of very good economists going around who are being completely ignored. And, and she's one of them. Well, she does get a mug on the telly now and again. And the idea that you free up business, you lower taxes, you reduce wages, you make profits, those profits are reinvested back in more business, the whole thing expands, more jobs are created, and everybody, it, it's, it's all complete nonsense, of course. It's an awful lot of the, the, well, for instance, the highest growth in the UK was 1945 to 1960, when the state was nationalising industries and doing everything that neoliberals said that we shouldn't do. We had the highest growth in, in our history. So it's a myth. It's a, not, it's a tissue of lies and half-truths. So it's a logic. Everyone everyone follows that logic. Yeah, just promote business, make people free, um, encourage enterprise, attract investment. Yeah, you, you know, you're like, you, you try, it's like a sort of courtship. You have to woo these private investors. You read Brett Christopher's work on, on the private equity uh, companies, BlackRock, Vanguard, who handle all of the global investment. They basically own control the whole world. They're in Ukraine at the moment discussing investment when the war finishes, where they can place their bets and their gambles in order to make loads of money on the reconstruction of a country devastated by war. It's entirely immoral. It's a logic everyone follows. So the handmaidens, as you put them, very is exactly right. They know what side their bread's butting on, matey. They know that they have their salaries. They keep quiet about all of this. And they reframe radicalism in, in cultural terms. Let's talk about quality. Of, you know, and we aren't against any of this. Believe me, we want to see. We want to see that. Yeah, you can't argue with the morality behind it. That's 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 where the it's a very strong shield they've constructed because you can't argue against gays getting equal treatment. You can't argue against bigotry. We don't. We can't do that. So as soon as you criticise this cultural turn, you can be very, very easily framed as a bigot, you see. They've got the whole thing covered. They've got the shields up. The whole yeah. campaign works very well. Mm. So it's logic. Handmaidens know that if they're going to get... Uh, let's basically... Let, come on, let's be honest. Cut to the chase. Their job's worth Their job's worth Simple as that, you know. They, 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 we were Jobsworths, weren't we, Simon? When we first started, we were Jobsworths. We knew how to apply for grants. We knew what to say in in, in interviews, talking bollocks in interviews. And I never said anything in an interview that I really believed. And you know, just to get a job. Once we got there in position of strength, we started to tell the truth. Then we got cancelled, but we're strong enough to resist that. We're intellectually strong enough to resist that. We're also physically strong enough. We're both pretty big guys, you know. And mm. we don't. They both, dear listener, both of these men look very hard. Yeah, well, we're hard. <laughs> we're soft. We're soft, really, but we're we're we're, we're very resilient, and, and and that was an aspect of masculinity that was quite useful to the left. If it was controlled, and if it was, mm. um, you know, it, it's all, I hate to say this, it's I'm going to be cancelled again, but it's a sort of righteous violence you know this is there was a toughness about the left that and a lot of the women people like ellen wilkinson i mean they were tough girls you know they, they, we really got stuck in and we, we went out and we protested and then we wouldn't go back and we're beaten up by the police in 1984 the miners and the women were out there with us and and we were tough people and, and they hate that toughness and, and to soften us down and, and pulverize us and, and triturate the working class and turn us all into softies is a very good tactic 
Uh, I've got to congratulate them. Well done done that one. You, you, you've really <laughs> domesticated us very, very well. We now lie on your lap and uh, have a tummy's tickled. So <laughs> you know, the idea of uh, the, the traditional masculinity is now toxic masculinity is, again, an idea that I would question, and I would like to see some research into this, but you can't get any funding to do it. You can't get any time to do it. And as soon as you publish a book saying, well, maybe toxic masculinity is not a great idea, you get cancelled. So, again, the knowledge is not provisional. Toxic masculinity is a thing. It's like a moral panic. It's like, you, like you, you know, it, it, it's like you boil an egg for three and a half minutes and it's, it, it's at the right, you know, it's, it's a nice, uh, nice and soft, you know. It's, it's, it's a fact. So you can't challenge it. And, and you can't really have a social science, can you, or a philosophy if you're not challenging concepts. So we haven't got either. It's all at a standstill. And uh, now you've got these warring factions uh, warring over these concepts that are set in stone. It, I was toxic. I'm a toxic male, but I was brought up as a traditional male. I was taught of not to abuse children, not to hit women, not to hit people who were smaller than me. I was taught all these things, and I, and I obeyed to you know. I said, okay, all right, mum, all right, dad. I'll try not to. I was brought up a toxic male, but um, I, I wasn't very toxic. It, it, it was a way of controlling what what may be t- testosterone fueled creatures that we are. It was a way of controlling ourselves and behaving in a civilized way. And that murder rate I was telling you about zero point four percent per hundred thousand in uh, in nineteen fifty six in the UK is probably the lowest murder rate ever experienced anywhere in any time or place in the world. And it was you know life wasn't that bad. It wasn't great, and we need to improve a lot. There was a lot of bigotry and but prejudice. I've seen Mad Men, and it you know it doesn't look very good. Is what they'd say. You know they'd say everything that happened five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> was a was hell worst, realm. Was yeah. a patriarchal hell realm. Get rid of it. It's a great book. Tom Tom, Tom Frank's book, uh, um, Conquest of Cool Oil. And the advertising agencies changed in 1960, and all of a sudden, the, the family and all the old institutions that were, were, were the context for advertising. You know, the mom and pop in the car with the two kids in the back, and all was replaced by Marlboro Man. You know, the individual riding out and in, 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 you know. The, Leaving all that behind, the the quicker the, the quicker we leave everything behind, the better life will be. <sighs> I don't know about that. Well, well, well. I want to get your take on on family because I I feel like we're living kind of in in an anti family and, and an anti children world in a way. Like you know, I mean, to take things like like you know, COVID lockdowns locked kids out of school, but but also crazy stuff like drag queen story hour and sort of the LGBT stuff that's coming in for kids. Like, you know, I, I want to get your opinion on, on on the role of the family from from a left perspective, you know, because I get I get the feeling that that the left has has some an, antagonism towards the family unit. Yes, it's 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 you know. You, Sorry, I'm hogging this, Simon. I'll say a couple of things and let that sound take over on that. You can trace this back to Engels, as a, you know, his notion of the family as, as the, the reproducer of um, inequality, of a privilege and, 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 and violence and patriarchy and all bad things in the world. And the early communists wanted to... Um, dissolve the family and, and, and uh, turn the world into sort of kibbutz-style communes. I, I went through all of this in the 70s. These communes were a laugh, I'll tell you. Oh, dear me, you know, they, they, what an absolute mess. They were, uh, people, you know, they, they, they were just horribly unstable things. I know. Sort of, I lived in one for three months and tried this uh, experimental lifestyle. Uh, they were very dangerous, very dangerous for children too because the research shows that the more – 
the more adults well, you, you had sort of around. Who, who was coming into the, out of the commune, and so you didn't know who was influencing your, 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 your child. I didn't have any children at the time, thank God. So the nuclear family was has been attacked by the left for a long time. This feeds into far right conspiracy theory, where they think, oh, this is some sort of uh, you know attack and replacement theory. They're trying to destroy all our institutions, destroy all our society. They blame this on the left. And they reinforce their, the, the conservative, you know, re, the traditional conservative worldviews is, is simply reinforced by all of this. So the attacks in the family, I think, have been negative. Um, the nuclear family is not perfect, but I mean, if you if you can't look after your kids, who the hell else is going to look after them? You know, I mean, it, it is ridiculous. We have this biological parents and the obligation. Is there anything wrong with duty and obligation? There's another thing we have to question. Is duty a, a, a bad thing? Is obligation a bad thing? Not always, I don't think. Depends what you're obliged to and what values are, are, are at the core of that obligation. I was, I've been obliged to my kids all my life. It's restricted my life. And at the same time, it's made it more joyful. And I think, you know, the, the balance between those two, those two things is, is important. And um, if you can't love your family can't love your, your neighbourhood, you can't love, you know, we've got a beautiful coast up here in Northumberland, which I love, you know, dearly. I, I, I sometimes think, well, if you can't love your own family, you can't love your own neighbourhood, you can't love anyone else's, you just can't love. And, and, and that's the problem, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the left seems to be so loveless and, 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 and their emotions have, have been redirected. I think I think the the what we might call the war on the family, obviously, as Steve said, there is, is a long history on the left, but that history reflected the fundamental antagonisms, especially in the nineteenth century, as socialism really began to get off the ground and began to move towards a mass movement, because those intellectuals who were advocating for the end of the family, Engels most notably, but also Proudhon and, and lots of other European leftists were mostly middle-class liberals. Now, in many cases, especially with Engels, they advocated an economic programme, which was integral to their philosophy. But their, their anti-family uh, uh, concern never never went over with the working class. And, you know, the, the, the family has got problems. There are issues to do with domestic abuse in the 19th century, especially uh, uh, child sexual abuse, but most people have positive experiences of family life. And people didn't understand why the left was, when people were living in desperate circumstances in the, as the industrial, industrialism began to develop, why the left was concerned with stripping ordinary people of one of the institutions which actually gave them some support and some sense of satisfaction in their lives. And it's to do with the kind of, you know, in Britain especially, we often talk about the left as being a broad church, but this is a, a fissure, a brick within the left, going back to the 19th century, where intellectuals, who were mostly middle class because of educational advantages, of course, were generally speaking liberals and concerned with cultural issues, whereas the left for the working class were always concerned with economic management. For them, safety and security were always far more important than cultural freedom. You know, defending against the ravages of the world was always absolutely central to working class culture, working class political left. 
the institutions, most notably the trade union movement, were concerned mostly with protecting and advancing the interests of working class. And of course, the middle class bourgeois left were more interested in fighting cultural antagonisms, taking on cultural tasks. And of course, while that changed, and I'm, I'm kind of generalizing slightly, but right at, the, right at the start there, there was this division between an economically focused working class who were mostly pragmatic, quite practical, and a more liberal, cultural-focused bourgeois left. And of course, I mean, talking about the family, made the point, well, Freud, of course. Now, we, we have the injunction that we should kind of love love everybody from around the world and accept everybody from around the world as neighbours. But Freud's point is that this is always a kind of a fruitless task because as soon as we say we love strangers, it reduces the, the, the meaning of love to the, those who are our immediate intimates. So our children, our, you know, the people who form our, the nuclear family with us. Those relationships are kind of reduced if we say that the, we love the, the love we have for them is equivalent to a complete stranger. So Freud was always making the point that this is a, you know, it was always a fabrication. It didn't take us anywhere productive. And for love to really work, it has to be about close personal supportive relationships. It, it seems as though the left always gets co-opted by kinkos and, and creeps and, and people with, with weird sexual fetishes. You know, who can we blame perverts. for this? I mean, perverts, basically. I mean, are the French to blame? Is is <laughs> Are they no, responsible? I, I, <laughs> no, I wouldn't dare blame the French for anything at the moment. No, no, it was, uh, no, it, the, the left has always been a sanctuary. And um, anyone, uh, you know, with, um, let's call it less than mainstream desires and, and, and uh, has always seen the left as um, a sanctuary and an advocate and, uh, and an organisation that would at least consider them to be part of the future rather than the past. And um, I know uh, Alex Hercouli and, and Phil Cunliffe and, uh, and his, uh, his friends um, call this minoritarianism. The left has, has, has supported minorities against the majority because it's always seen the majority as a conservative obstacle to the, to the new futures, this dreaming of a, of a beautiful new future. And as Simon has just said, working classes' concerns are entirely different. They needed safety and security because they didn't have any in the 19th century. Uh, you know, they were forced off the land, forced off their farms into these awful cities. And this is what Engels got right. So, you know, when he was looking at Manchester, the condition of the working class, they had no security, no welfare, they had no property, they had no savings, they had no pensions, they had no vote. It was an awful condition to be in. And so they were, of course, they were obsessed with safety and security because they didn't have any. And, and the, the, the two groups have never been on the same page. They have different conditions, different desires, different needs. And the, the, the middle class left has always had this libertine streak, this Nietzschean idea of sort of moving beyond good and evil. You could trace this back to Dessart, this sort of aristocratic devil-may-care attitude to the world. Let's, I, I, I can, I'm above normality. I, I, I can just rise above normality and I can construct myself as this beautiful free spirit floating around the stratosphere and look down at you 
poor quotidian proles who are doing all the bloody work that I need to making the chairs that I sit on and constructing the, the, the stages that I perform my ballet acts on. And you can just get on with that because that's all you're good for. Well, I become this, this wonderful, it is, you know, as Christopher Lash described, it's, this is just a basically institutionalized narcissism. Well, we have an interesting example here because uh, there's a great podcast, uh, Red Fem, uh, and uh, two actual, uh, you know, uh, committed feminist Marxists, uh, and Dr. Jen Isaacson on that podcast uh, uh, has often talked about the sexual misconduct of the men on the left uh, and the inability of the left uh, to deal with this behaviour. Uh, also, I suppose, in addition, the the um, absolute. Um, uh, sort of lack of limits on sex and sexuality as well is built into that. But they have these concrete examples where Dr. Jen has been part of a collective, like the, like various groups, like like where they actually go out and pamphlet and do do the do the old fashioned stuff, like on the ground material stuff. And there's always a guy who is in a position of power, and he ends up uh, racing off some teenagers and blowing up the entire group. This has happened like more than once. So what, what, you know, we'll get, we'll get off sex in just a second, gentlemen, but um, <laughs> does the left have a sex problem? I mean, they don't talk about security, which is what you guys have been saying that is what we should be talking about, that is that working class people and material uh, change, security is what's most important, whereas we seem to be hearing a lot about this other stuff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, you know, um, I know of Jen and, and, and their sort of feminist position, and I sort of agree but I, in, in, in what she's saying, but it's one-dimensional. I mean, I remember the 60s and 70s where it were because women regarded themselves as, you know, following Germaine Greer and the, the, the sort of the second-wave feminists as, as the oppressed and, 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 and repressed and everything ending in ED or whatever, you know, that there, there were. Uh, women, uh, the sexual misconduct of women was incredible. Because they were bursting out of this, out of this repressive um, environment, um, which is fundamentally reproduced by Christianity, I suppose, as the idea of a woman as the as, as the domestic servant and and and, and reproducer of the children. It was women. The sexual misconduct of women far outweighed the sexual misconduct of men. It was incredible. I think you've just cancelled yourself Great again. <laughs> That's yeah. another cancellation yeah. for you. Seventies. I tell you, I was a musician. You know, and I wanted bloody hell. It was whoa! I'm not used to this, you know, because those were the verse they were bursting out of this shell, and everyone was having a whale of a time. I don't think it was particularly patriarchal. I don't think it was particularly. It was actually great fun, but it was disastrous over the long term because I think it it changed the values in which relationships were founded upon irrevocably, and and it was um, you know it was the old philosophical <laughs> um, um, uh, notion of, of, of the destiny of, of the journey being great fun but the destination not being too great and of course when AIDS came around in, in, in the early 80s it put the block on that and what that did was repress real sex again and expand the pornography industry you know so the sort of sublimation it was a, there was a re-sublimation at that period so I think um, I think the feminist position and again we, I was cancelled for saying this you know in 2016 the feminist position is, is probably right but one-dimensional 
I don't think it was simply sexual misconduct. I mean, the Russell Brand thing is, a, you know, I disagreed with Jen on that. The Russell Brand has to go through due process because if we remove due process, we remove one of the fundal, fundamental civilizing planks of the, of, of, of the West. You know, we're not very good at civilizing ourselves, but without that, would be even worse. We have to we have to retain due process, and you know, the trial by media is an awful thing because it happened to me, two thousand sixteen. I was uh, jumped on by, you know, 500 feminists and, and, and um, simply for suggesting that the patriarchal continuum actually reduced violence, which I think I proved empirically without, without any doubt. And I, I said, you know, so they did it for the wrong reasons, that they're, they're not good people, but that wasn't enough. We, you, you simply, there are, you're, you're presented with a, a canon of work you can't argue against, you know? And I think all of the identitarian positions, including feminism, are guilty of that. And we need to break through that. We need to start to re-examine. Call me a revisionist, a permanent revisionist, if you want. Call me what you want. But I think we need to re-examine all of these so-called truths and start to, to, to look at things again. So I agree with her, yes, but I think it's one-dimensional. Yeah, I was just going to make the point that kind of point about marketized capitalist subjectivity. So the the people that Jen's talking about, kind of middle-class leftist men, understand their subjectivity, that they, they act out this uh, subjectivity that's rooted in the accumulation of experiences. So every boundary on any, any behavior is there to be overstepped. So nothing should be denied every experience should be accumulated you should have as much sex as you can you should take as many drugs as you can you should never be impeded you should never be obliged you should do whatever the hell you want it's an entirely negativistic subjectivity it's an anti-social subjectivity and it's it, you know that and the and it's always been there on in within liberalism and unfortunately at particular points it emerges in a really brutal form as leftist politics has changed across the centuries. And I think I have certainly encountered libertines masquerading as socialists, and they don't care about the traditional concerns of socialism. They don't, conter they don't want to change the world at all. They just want to wrestle free of every restriction and obligation that society might place upon yeah. them so they can do something that is simply the product of their own internal desire. You know, it would be that to have sex with children or to kind of leave their family or whatever it is. They want to kind of pursue their own desires unimpeded. And I think, obviously, that, that is an, perhaps now more than at any point in the left's history is actually a feature of the dominance of kind of bourgeois liberal uh, masculinities in particular institutions. Well, gentlemen, while we still have you, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about multiculturalism. So there, there are large amounts of illegal uh, legal and illegal immigration happening in the UK at the moment, and, and this is a, a polarising issue for people. I guess progressives will wheel out the mystical, all-encompassing term multiculturalism as, as the reason why, you know, there's nothing to see here, isn't migration good? And I guess those on the right are, are more concerned with, with how it will impact jobs and, and shared resources and perhaps cultural cohesion. But I, I, I hate to sound cynical, but outside of cuisine and music, what, what does 
a diverse multicultural society give an average person? I mean, is is multiculturalism a force for good or just a source of good food? Well, again, it's one of the hot questions, and and to question the liberal view of of, of immigration and multiculturalism is is another no no. You know, you, you do something you can't do. But I says, and in keeping with our principle that everything should be questioned and revised, then we have to start looking at immigration rationally. Um, even Foucault, someone I, I have a detest generally. Uh, um, even Foucault said that really rationality is all we have. Uh, that's the only thing saves is trying to work things out. And immigration can be very, very good. Um, and immigration can be very, very bad. And it can be everything in between. Um, but what we do, again, is, is we, we apply this one-dimensional template to, to, to immigration. It's great. It can't be argued against, and it's great for everyone. It's actually not great for, for instance, the countries of origin. Uh, let's take an example of Bulgaria, which during the heyday of the EU lost 26% of its population because the investors wouldn't invest in Bulgaria. Uh, which lets the investors off the hook, the global investors, the private equity corporations would invest in Bulgaria. Um, therefore, they lose 26% of their working age population. To, uh, they, they lose demand, they lose productivity, and the economy tanks. So it, it, it devastates the, the economies. Ethiopia, producing doctors. More doc Ethiopian doctors now work in Chicago than work in Ethiopia. So where, where are the Ethiopians going to find a doctor? So this, again, is the freedom of individuals to go around the world and find the richest country that they possibly... I'll say that again. This is the freedom of individuals to go around the world and find the, the, the richest country they can and prosper. Again, this is liberal individual freedom is, is behind this. Rather than stay in their own country and make it better, because maybe they don't love their own country enough. I don't know. You'd have to ask each one. Uh, multiculturalism can be a wonderful thing, except course when there's a clash of norms and if there's a clash a serious clash of norms for instance that some cultures have a lower age of um, child uh, you know to permission to um, have sex and some have a lower age of criminal responsibility so you're going to get so is there ever a compromise when these two cultures come together there should be um, but very rarely there isn't. So that there are problems that we just ignore and we skate over because we think multiculturalism is a great thing. So the answer I give you is that multiculturalism is just what it is. And, and we need to look at it rationally. It's going to have specific impacts, specific consequences, specific effects that we have to look at. But the problem is we are not allowed to look at them. And, and you know, unless you look at them positively, so so you must be positive about what we tell you to be positive about. If working class people in certain places in in the UK might find that their, their jobs are rather insecure, and that an influx of immigrants might jeopardise their chances at the lower end of the market. It works well where there's a labour shortage in other parts of the market. If you need immigrants, then they come in and they work. There's no problem. And the other thing, of course, is that. All of the sociological studies of, of, of yesteryear, the past ones, showed that when we have a healthy economy, jobs, incomes, we might need a bit of labour, people come into work. If they're working together, there's some famous studies of the, the car factories in Luton where immigrants were working with 
um, uh, some of the uh, longer settled people in in the UK, they start talking to each other, realise they're human. They've got very same material needs underneath all of these cultural differences. They join the same union. They, they start talking about their kids um, going out too late at night and being worried about them getting all the same. They find they have similar needs and they start getting on together. And they start realizing that there are faults with each other's culture. They can learn from each other a bit. But if they're not working together, if they're not actually, if they're in ghettos, if they're separated, and of course, an awful lot of, for instance, critical race theory is is, is quite separatist. Yes, so that we, we should retain our separate culture. Um, you shouldn't have yours, of course, but we should we should have ours and retain our separate. It, 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 it tends to increase that antagonism and, and, and isolationism. So I think that multiculturalism is a great idea in the right context, it, but it can cause problems in the, in the current context of a, of a declining economy and market economy and also of separatist uh, cultural movements. Simon, did you have anything to add? Yes, yeah, so I would just add that uh, in many cases, multiculturalism is acts as a cipher. It, 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 it's not actually multicultural at all. It's actually monocultural. You know, in many cases, what we're talking about, especially in the on the liberal left, are uh, the movement of people from around the world, from various cultural backgrounds, who happen to be middle class and liberal, into Western cultures. And we, you know, they they read the same newspapers, they watch the same TV shows, they're dedicated to consumers, dedicated to consumers, but they've moved from maybe Africa or Asia or North America or wherever it might be, and they've landed in Britain, and we call that multiculture but actually they in order for those people to be fully accepted they have to accept the dominance of cultural liberalism in the institutions in which they work so for example the, the professional in, in uh, and corporate uh, large corporations for example you've got to be liberal uh, they accept the cultural frameworks of you know the uh, western media and they accept consumerism and so in many cases there is no multicultural. Multicultural ex- exists away from media commentary. It's on the background there. It's where those people who have no interest in integrating how those various groups uh, kind of clash together. And in many cases, we're talking about the only the surface issue, the diversity of people from around the world joining our monoculture and accepting consumerism as the abiding logic of the time and forgetting everything else that goes on when various cultural groups occupy, for instance, quite neighbouring states and a, a large city or something like that. But I think what we're calling for when we're talking about multiculturalism is a, in the book is a, a better understanding of what multiculturalism is and how it affects ordinary people in their everyday lives. And Steve articulated very well indeed how socialists address multicultural is to forget difference and to foreground sameness. What do we have that is shared? Love of our children, an interest in the national sports team, and of course, you know, a relationship with the means of production, gripes about employers, problems with political representation. All of those things can be integral towards creating a new, vibrant culture that represents the reality of the societies in which we live. But if we focus on difference, we will never create a vibrant multiculturalism because all we'll have is separatism. Well, uh, I think that I, I want to give you guys the, the final word because we're very mindful of your time. Um, 
I'm just going to leave this broad and, and you can cover whatever you think that, that you know, we've left out or, or something that, 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 is, is, that you're burning to get off your chest. Um, but I, I'll just, my, my provocative question, broad as it may be, is, you know, what, what do we, the list and the listeners, because, you know, we have a lot of disaffected uh, um, lefties who listen to us and a lot of people who are politically homeless, but what do we need to do to get the left we deserve? Well, I kick that off, and I'll try and be as brief as possible because it's a huge question. But I, I'll try. I'll try. You know, I'll, I'll try to focus on, on on what I consider to be the most important aspects. Uh, the final chapter of the book we we call a return to economics. Now, anyone who focuses hard on economics uh, uh, has been dismissed as an economic reductionist or class reductionist in the past, and I think we need to reject those. Um, rather harsh terms and, and, and focus on economics again to start to understand economics. Economics, the way we understand it, has been pretty much a, a set of myths propagated by neoliberals. We need to see neoliberals as a project. It, it's not the Marxists get it wrong. It's not sort of some organic development in the next stage of capitalism. This was a, an agentic project. They first met in 1939, the Walter Lippmann Colloquium. Their idea was to roll the free market out globally, and, and to uh, disempower the working class and the state, the democratic state. This is why we have the democratic deficit. And they've succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. They were funded very heavily by the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, um, and to spread this, these ideas. And, and the, the focus of these ideas in economics departments and in, in schools and universities, the guy who's out I'm staying in now is, is one of the uh, A-level examiners in economics and um, trying to change the questions and change economics is just impossible. You must stick with the neoclassical, neoliberal myths. So we return to economics and we start wondering why um, our democratic representatives sim uh, say things like, the markets are telling us this and the markets are telling us this. The markets control everything. Yeah? What are the markets saying? Well, there's no such thing as the markets. The markets are a set of traders, right? They're market traders, money traders, financiers, investors, and, uh, of course, uh, capital equity corporations and commodity traders. So th th there's no such thing as the markets. There are a set of decisions made by people. You either invest in the place or you don't invest in the place, okay? We come from the deindustrialized north. We're the victims of disinvestment or deinvestment, yeah? We stop investing. We go to the Far East because wages are cheaper, materials are cheaper, taxes are cheaper, and we can make more money. It's as simple as that, yeah? And, and what Yanis Varoufakis called the, 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 the great, the most audacious um, shift in, in economic history was to reverse the flows of global trade and capital, yeah? And to, to make stuff in the East, sell it in the West, whereas before it was the other way around. Incredibly audacious amount of power and influence that people have, these financiers have in the world is incredible. So what we've got to do is learn something about economics. Why does the EU restrict uh, fiscal spending to 3% of GDP? It's ridiculous. You can't do anything with it. Public, we can't have public investment. The UK has the longest coastline in Europe. We could be selling electricity to Europe if we had massive public investment to create green energy. We, we could do anything. We can do anything we want. Unfortunately, it's people like Xi and Putin who are doing anything they want at the moment. Xi is producing... Um, uh, the, the, the new, uh, well, the very old idea, bore on the safe, bore on nuclear power stations, building one a fortnight. They're building bridges all over China. We can do anything we want if we have control of investment and finance. We can create a world in which there's a job, guaranteed jobs, loads of jobs that need to do. This whole damn country of ours needs repaving. 
You come to the UK and the pavements are all falling to pieces. There's places in this UK are derelict, they're ruined. And we, we, we live in the northeast, and there are more <laughs> ruined places up here than anywhere else. The old mining and, and industrial areas. We need to rebuild the whole country. It's something you probably don't have in Australia because you're a newer country, but this is a very old country, lads. Very, very old. And it's falling to pieces. It was a symbolic act. The other day, someone cut a 300-year-old tree down in a natural beauty spot, Sycamore Gap. And it seemed to, to, to signify the ruination of, of, of our history. This is something we, we, we live in amongst ruins. Of course, the southeast, incredibly prosperous. London, the southeast, but up in the north and Wales, places like this. We need to rebuild the country. We can't do that unless we have control of finance investment. We need to learn, economic, learn economics. We need to challenge neoliberal orthodoxy. We need to teach kids about it. I'm not saying we should, we should um, run away from the arts, that we should diminish the arts. The arts are incredibly important. I'm a former, well, I still play. I'm a jazz musician, an active jazz musician. I love art, I love music. But in a healthy economy... Music and art prosper too. You know, people have more spare time and they have more. They feel uplifted and they feel like they're, 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 they're driven. Art at the moment is rather depressing. You know, I find you know it's a, it's a sign of the times. So we need to we need to return to economics and we need to start getting our heads around the economy and we and how economies work and how we can start to rebuild, reconstruct the, the nations in which we live. It's got to be done at the national level. And that's not because I'm a nationalist, it's because Wolfgang Strick is right. It's the only feasible unit of, of political and economic organisation. Regions are too small and, and, and the world is too big. So you have to do it at a feasible level. Also, of course, national currency is important because the power of the national currency, Australian dollar or the British pound, is, is what we have. That's what we have to spend. But people will accept that currency in, in return for goods and services and materials. As long as we have that currency, we can do what we want with it. As long as we control inflation, and there are ways of controlling inflation that are not talked about. So we need to get down, back down to this, rebuild our countries, give people a little bit of safety and security, and just have a breather from neoliberalism just for a couple of decades, you know, to just get rid of the stress and just return to some sort of sensible way of life. And um, then we find culture changing Along with that, and I think those changes would be possible, uh, would be positive, as the you know the work from the past um, shows. I think we could have more positive cultural changes uh, in a more secure economy. I think uh, to continue what Steve has said, I think the left has to stop seeing itself as a collection of activist movements. I think the lens of activism has been incredibly destructive for the left. So, it, it, of course, the act, activist lens encourages us to s find things out there in the world that we're against. So we're fighting against all the negativities of neoliberalism. We should see ourselves as a power in waiting. And if we're a power in waiting, we're going to have to come up with some strategies for improving the lives of ordinary people. Not being against something, but being for something that can be identified. Allowing people to see in your policies a benefit for them and their people. This is how the left should present itself. And of course, to do that, to get over the minefield of cultural antagonisms, we have to stop arguing the toss about who was the victim, who was the greater victim, who was the oppressor. And we have to return to the field of economics, where we have obviously things in common in overcoming the present dominant ideas of neoliberalism. Because unless we do something Unless we intervene and create a new economic platform for ordinary people, 
we're going to descend increasingly quickly to something that resembles feudalism, where the gap between rich and poor can't be breached, is enormous and growing, and people are forced to kind of root around for the scraps from the master's table. And unless we can come together and find a strategy for moving forward economically, then we're going to remain divided. And as we're divided, we're going to be remain easy for elites to dominate. Absolutely. And say one, one more thing, just, just, uh, just one little thing. Did anyone see Swaran's Children of Men, the movie? Yes. Well, I remember the last scene when they were leaving behind all of these antagonisms, the antagonisms Simon's talking about. These are antagonisms of the past and the politics of the past that were supposed to um, transcend these antagonisms didn't work. They, 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 they failed. And the ship came in. Do you remember the ship? It, it, was a, it came out of the mist in the harbour. And on the side of the ship, the human project, the ship was called the human. That's what we need. We need that ship to come in. That ship has to be built. It has to be made. We have to understand how it's made. We have to understand. We have to get on board. And we have to sail away from those those divisions, except that we do have different sexualities and we do have, we are from different parts of the world. We wear different hats and have different colour skins and create an economy in which people can move around the world but don't have to. If they want to stay home, they stay home. If they want to move somewhere, they can move somewhere. Yeah, Because we have stable economies. We can only do that by creating stable national economies, fair terms of trade, and this is a huge project, yeah? Huge project, but we need to start thinking about it, and the left needs to focus on this move forward. Otherwise, as Simon says, it's it, it's 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 dead now. It needs to it needs to to resurrect itself on the, on on that as part of that project, as the fundamental driver behind that new project. Well, we do have a, a final quick question that we ask all of our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. So maybe Simon, what what, what have you got uh, on your bedside table at the moment? Oh, I'm reading a collection of books about the, uh, the English pr primarily, but their experience of the Dark Ages. So a lot of stuff on Anglo-Saxon Britain, a lot of stuff on uh, Vikings and uh, raids and the development of Christianity. Uh, and, of course, I'm drawing parallels to the eventual decline of Western civilization and what we can learn about the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of the Dark Ages. So it doesn't sound like you're re reading about any people of colour. It just sounds very white to me. <laughs> bunch of white people that's all you, that's all you care yeah, about I mean, clearly I don't, know. I don't know what color they were <laughs> I don't care. Uh, Steve uh, what are you reading at the moment I, I've just finished reading Yanis Varoufakis' Techno-Feudalism um, what Simon's keeping secret there is, is that we're, we're, we're writing a new book I'm not convinced by technic techno feudalism. I don't think we're going back to a feudal era because feudal era had moral centre. It had a an accountable hierarchy. It, it had all sorts of things that we're not seeing today. So we 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 thought the dark ages were were, were better ideas. So he's looking at the dark ages of post Roman Empire and you know in, in Europe before um, Christianity. Um, was, was settled in after about the 12th century. I'm looking at the Mycenaean Dark Age of the Iliad and, and, and how Mycenaean civilization fell apart. 
and and having I'm reading stuff Moses Finley about that and reading the Iliad and, and and thinking to myself if it is barbarism rather than feudalism that we're looking for a period of barbarism of soft barbarism thank God it's happening in virtual reality and not in reality like it did in the Iliad because it's the bloodiest thing I've ever read you know some of the the violence of those days when they were. Uh, face last last man standing battles with sharp implements. It was just too horrific mm. to even think about. So I'm reading about that to see if because we we agree with Yanis's economic um, analysis, but we don't think feudalism is a very good analogy. So we think it might be more of a techno barbarism. So that's what we're looking at at the moment. Well, uh, while we wait for that book, uh, people need to read the current book, and that is The Death of the Left, Why We Must Begin from the Beginning Again, available uh, everywhere you can get books. It's on Kindle. Uh, it's on. It's in hard. Ba- uh, sorry, in uh, in old-fashioned paper and uh, Audible as well. So, gentlemen, where can people f- find you online? How can people follow your, your, your work? Well, we did have a Death of the Left account on Twitter, but, uh, but, but we pulled it. Um, Twitter is a cesspit. As you know, but Simon still got his account there, and 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 um, with, with his followers, and 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 uh, he, he's more even tempered than I am, so he he sort of is handling all that. And, uh, you know, I, I get a bit uh, anyway. Um, he he uh, he's doing that, so Simon will be advertising from his Twitter account, and 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 hopefully the publisher, whoever will be, will be doing a bit of work for us. Some hope, but uh, we, we'll we'll we, we, you know, so we, we, the usual channels plus Twitter. Follow Simon. Follow Simon on Twitter. Follow Simon Windler. Everyone needs to follow Simon. Uh, That's the old handball that Steve's doing there. Getting getting rid of Simon. But I just want to thank you for coming on today because it's uh, it's such a a gloriously hopeful message uh, that I got out of it, even though you know, at times your book is a bummer. Uh, I think you know, <laughs> but but I think the message ultimately is 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 hopeful, and and, and that we should be focusing on on uh, what unites us and not what divides us. And um, I just want to say, uh, guys, that you know, don't worry about your accents because to to us convicts, you you all sound like uh, the king. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big argument, right? I don't know if you probably want to put that. Pom, yeah, I thought was prisoner of Milbank, yeah, on the back of those shirts because Milbank was the was was the the the, um, the, the, the leaving point where you know. But an Australian academic said that's not true. Yes. What does it mean? It means it's a type of um. Uh, oh God, I knew it. I've even read it. It was in um. I think it might have even been in Thomas Keneally's history book. Uh, but it may, it means a certain type of ticket that you had to come over or something. Right. So it doesn't mean prisoner of Melbank. It wasn't prisoner. I don't think of so. No, no. But we know no, you. Okay. We know you from a kilometre away when you come here. By the way, you, you stick out. <laughs> you're pale, and yes. you're yeah. first you're, you're sunburned. Inappropriately dressed always. Absolutely. And probably whinging about something. But, but I mean, all I have to say, you, you guys, just don't, don't be too hard on Eddie Jones. He's he's not he's not bad. Oh. You know. <laughs> what an embarrassing! He took, he took, uh, he took an awful game. hammer in there. I mean, that was just embarrassing. I won't tell you about what I did with my popcorn and the, the pipe. No watching, good. But you know, we deserve it. We deserve that. You're better uh, than that. You're better than that. But it's a young side. They'll come through. He's right. You know, the youngsters will come through. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, gentlemen, thank you very much. Lovely, mate. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.